Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before we get started today, I want to let you know that this week is our member drive week. If you're not tuning into our other Strong Towns podcast, and really, why aren't you tuning into our other Strong Towns podcast? You might not be aware uh, that this is our, our member week. 40% of our revenue at Strong Towns comes from membership. People who give $5 a month, $10 a month, $25 a year. Actually, we have no limit, no bottom and no top on what you can give. So we have people who give us a dollar a year just to say, hey, I'm here. I support you. I'm with you. We have people who give much more than that. What, whatever is your capacity, we're a 501c3 nonprofit growing a movement for change. Our membership is not only a huge part of supporting that change, but the number of members that we have makes a big difference. It makes a big difference to uh, foundations, it makes a big difference to organizations that listen to our ideas and, and seek to implement them. The breadth and the depth of this movement is impressive to a lot of people, uh, and it's making our voice even bigger. Uh, it's making your voice even bigger. So take a moment today, go to strongtowns.org. Click on uh, Become a Member. It's right there in the upper right-hand corner of the page. Sign up to, to give what you can and become part of the Strong Downs movement. We make all of our content free and available to everybody, but there are time-to-time -time special things we do for insiders. Certainly, uh, when we're coming to a region near you, we let you know. We do have special early releases and things we do for members, but but most importantly, when you're a member of Strong Towns, you're, you're, you're putting you know your your resources uh, where your heart is. Uh, help us grow this movement, help us reach more people, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. On with the show. I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Got my bus pass, been a ride, first class, street car, downtown, with a fine ladies in the peeps Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City, and I'm joined today by our regular co-host Chuck Barone, founder of Strong Towns, and also joining us is my friend Andrew Ganal, Kansas City-based urban developer with an extensive background in public policy and finance, formerly with the U.S. Treasury. Hello, Andrew. Is that was that a good bio? Is that how you would describe yourself? Would you add or subtract anything? I think that was great. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. If I could just add, Abby, I got to meet Andrew uh, back on the last book tour. And, you know, I, I get a chance to sit down and chat with people every now and then uh, in a relaxed way. And I sat down at this table and I wound up next to this guy. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this dude is fascinating. We talked for an hour and then they, I think they kicked us out of the place or I was going to pass out or something. I was so tired. When you said I'm having Andrew on, I didn't connect the face with the person. And now I'm looking at Andrew going, oh my gosh, I'm just going to sit back and let him talk the whole time because he's one of the most fascinating guys I've met in the last year. So with that set up, go for it, Abby. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I thought of you, Andrew, when Chuck sent me this article earlier this week, <laughs> because to be honest with you, this is a subject that is a little bit out of my depth. And it's something that's really important and something that I think you would have a good perspective on. So this is published by Neil Irwin and Ax is it Axis? Is that how you pronounce this? Axios. 
Axios, thank you. Um, and it is entitled The Fed's $2.7 trillion mortgage problem. So uh, in February of 2020, the Fed's the Fed held $1.4 trillion in mortgage-backed securities due to monetary stimulus efforts throughout throughout the pandemic. The central bank began a new round of bond purchases known as quantitative easing, which swelled that number to $2.7 trillion. Now, as the Fed seeks to tighten monetary policy to combat inflation, it says that by September, it will reduce the mortgage portfolio by up to $35 billion per month, known as quantitative tightening. So this works in a couple of ways, as I understand it. The first is that the Fed may either let its holdings shrink as securities get paid off or, or are refinanced. The alternative is that they may begin selling the securities on the open market. So according to the article, if the Fed starts selling mortgage securities that pay low rates at a time when prevailing rates are much higher, it could incur big financial losses that will reduce funds the central bank returns to the Treasury. So that translates to losing billions of dollars on behalf of the American people and pushing mortgage rates up even further than what we're seeing today. So as the non-finance person in the room, um, (laughs) I feel like I have a lot more questions than answers. And maybe to start, Andrew, I'd I'd like to kind of get your perspective on what this all means, kind of what is going on with the perspective that this is not necessarily a financial podcast, so there's probably a lot of people in our audience who are just as kind of confused as I am as to what this all really means. Sure, Abby. Thanks again for having me on. It's good to be here with you and Chuck. So you mentioned at the top of your intro that the Fed actually owned $1.4 trillion of these securities at the start of uh, the COVID pandemic. So where did those securities come from? Well, actually, they were bought years prior to that in the wake of the great financial crisis in 2009-2010. So that was, to my knowledge, really the Fed's first dip into buying these kinds of products in its history before. And it built up quite the portfolio, but that portfolio was running down over the years after the Fed stopped doing that in about 2014. And by 2020, it was down to about $1.4 trillion. Well, we had the COVID crisis in March of 2020. The markets really did seize up quite a bit, and the Fed turned back to some of these older tools that it had used for a number of years to help address that issue. And so the portfolio is now actually up to about $2.7 trillion. So it doubled the amount of uh, specifically mortgage-backed securities that it's owned. It also greatly increased the number of treasury securities it owns as well um, in about from about March of 2020 to December of 2021. But by November or so of 2021, the Fed was saying, we think we've actually pretty much done what we set out to do by buying these securities and supporting this market. It's time to stop tape or start tapering down our purchases and in fact start let the portfolio start to run off. And so this article is in part talking about how that unwinding of this portfolio that grew so much during 2020 and 2021 how that could happen. Andrew, if I could ask you a question, I feel like there's a certain you know, abstractness in the numbers and people hear, well, the Fed buying this and buying that. Why is the Fed buying mortgage-backed securities in the first place? Like what, what does that, I mean, obviously they're trying to support the mortgage market, but what does their purchase of these things do to support people getting into houses and staying in houses in theory? 
Well, if somebody couldn't get a mortgage because there were no lenders out there, then you're going to see a lot fewer houses purchased. So you see a lot fewer houses built. And so you'll see a lot of downstream impact from lack of activity in that sector. And the, and the housing market in America is like 15% of the total economy. It's just a huge chunk of the actual economic activity within the country. So uh, in March of 2020, the plumbing of the financial system seized up in a way that it really hadn't done since about 2008, 2009. Uh, and in part, it was because of holders of all kinds of securities really fleeing to quality and getting very nervous. And a lot of the normal ins and outs of these sort of markets started to grind to a halt. And essentially, the Fed stepped in like they did in 2009 and said, we're just going to put so much money into the economy that the banks don't have to worry about who's going to buy these stuff at the end of the day because we're here to we'll, we'll be here to buy them. And I don't know exactly what percentage of the overall NVS market they ended up buying, but it was a good chunk. It's probably like 50% plus of the number of NVS. I heard at one point it was 100% for a while. It, it probably was probably was close to 100% or at 100% for a good period of time. So it's a it's a big number, but also the housing market in the United States is a really big number as well. Right. So let me let me state something, and, and you tell me if I, I've got this right, because I I feel like what what we're saying here is that to local banks who are out making home mortgages, a local bank doesn't want to hold a mortgage. They they can't have thirty years of, uh, of of risk exposure, particularly at low interest rates. If if a local bank were going to originate a loan, and you said you've got to hold this for thirty years, they would say, well, I I need you know, 10% interest rate. I need a 15% interest rate. Like I need a really high interest rate because I don't know what 30 years is going to look like. And I'm, you know, the money that I am borrowing as a local bank, you would call a deposit, right? This goes back to the, uh, it's a wonderful life narrative of, you know, your money's in this person's house and that. And so in order to not have that liquidity problem, uh, local banks sell mortgages, qualifying mortgages onto a secondary market. What you're describing, I, I believe, is a secondary market that lacked liquidity. There was not enough, essentially, buyers of those mortgage products. And so the way you would normally solve that problem without the Fed would be interest rates would go way, way up, right? The way we get people to buy a debt instrument is to pay high interest. And of course, if you're in a pandemic or in an economic downturn, the last thing you want is for interest rates to spike through the roof because that will just reinforce the downward cycle. So the Fed steps in and says, we will assure the local banks that you don't have anything to worry about. Go ahead and make as many loans as you want because we'll buy every single one. And because we're buying every single one, the interest rate on that will be really low. Is that, is that a fair? Am I describing that correctly? Am I missing something? I think that's a good description. Mortgages also have another funny feature where they could be prepaid at zero penalty, which is typically a very odd thing and not great for the lender because you can imagine when uh, interest rates are falling and that mortgage is becoming more valuable because it's at a higher interest rate, the prevailing rates, uh, that's when someone says, you know what, I'm going to refinance. I'm going to pay you back. So the bank is getting money flowing back into it at exactly the wrong moment. Um, and vice versa on the other side, right? So when interest rates are rising, and this is what we're seeing now, you're seeing fewer and fewer refinancings, and therefore the number of new mortgages that are happening is falling as well. And so that's in part what the Fed doesn't want to see. They don't want to see that fall in economic activity. They want to encourage banks to continue to make those loans. And so they provide that outlet on the secondary market, like you said, for at least 
qualifying mortgages. So that's a big portion of the mortgage market, but it's not the whole market. The Fed will say, we'll buy these things off the secondary market. We'll pull supply out of the market. Perhaps as importantly, we'll take interest rate risk out of the market. So the Fed is using its own balance sheet to absorb some of the interest rate risk out there. Um, and that's, I think, alluded to in the article today, too, where the Fed, in some ways, when it started to unwind its portfolio, will be putting that interest rate risk back into the private sector. But they also feel like economic conditions are such that the private sector is ready, willing, and able to absorb that risk back onto themselves. So the article, you know, as you mentioned, they they kind of are alluding to the fact that they may need to sell these securities on the open market if the securities are not, you know, if these holdings are not shrinking at the rate that is needed in a more natural way through, you know, the securities being paid off or refinanced. Do you have any thoughts on, I guess, how these kinds of signals impact consumer behavior, how banks might relate to this kind of news and these kind of signals coming from the Fed? Because it it does seem that there may be a reaction just from regular homeowners um, where they may decide not to sell their house due to kind of these these changes in interest rates. Um, and, you know, people may stop refinancing their houses for that reason, too. And so there's a bit of a disincentive for maybe these more natural changes to occur that would kind of force the Fed to need to sell off these securities on the open market. And it seems like that's kind of what they're they're signaling that that's a likely um, outcome here. Yeah, the Fed is signaling that they're they're tightening their monetary policy, right? They are explicitly trying to tamp down the number one problem out there, which is inflation. And so they're doing that in two ways. One is that they're raising those short-term interest rates. And the second is that they're withdrawing some of that liquidity from the market that you were describing earlier. So I think if you're a homeowner, you're sort of downstream of this. You're taking what interest rates are offered to you. But as a natural outflow of those rising interest rates, you're going to do certain things. You're not going to refinance. You're going to stay in your home longer. You're not going to buy a new home. If you are a renter, you may delay the purchase of a new home for some period of time. Uh, but essentially, you're, the, the Fed really is trying to tamp down on all the demand out there that's pushing up prices across the board. There's a lot of interesting debate about why inflation is happening that we could get into a little bit. But this is really downstream of the Fed saying, we have to use our tools to tighten up monetary policy and bring down inflation before it really gets too hard of a grip on the economy. Go ahead, Abby. Well, I, I was actually going to ask you, you know, from your perspective and from kind of a strong town's perspective, how you see these changes impacting this movement, what you're trying to do for communities, and how might towns and cities react or, or not react to some of these changes in monetary policy at the federal level? Yeah, it's a good question. One one of the things that has been very frustrating, I think, for everybody, you know, in the economy is that housing prices have seemed to not be correlated. Let's use a, a, a insider term 
you know, not correlated with local markets. That was the thing we discovered in 2008, right? If you go watch The Big Short, read the book, The Big Short, and the standard underlying assumption of every Wall Street bank, of every person who dealt in the mortgage industry was that mortgages were uncorrelated. If the housing market tanked in Florida, that did not mean the housing market would tank in Minnesota. That did not mean the housing market would go up in California or New York. They were uncorrelated because they were assumed to be like geographically dependent. What we showed in 2008 was that the housing market was 100% correlated. It was all the same everywhere. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the main reasons is that the way we finance housing is the same in Kansas City as it is in Brainerd, Minnesota, as it is in Texas, as it is in California and Florida. They're, they're, they're all financed the same with the same products. And so you have this market that, for better or for worse, you know, I, I think there's a certain uh, amount of uh, dials and levers that can be pulled at the Fed uh, that can really have an oversized impact on the incentives throughout the entire system and affect the mortgage market. This makes uh, local policy more of a blunt instrument, uh, more of a benign kind of intervention, because if interest rates are going up, th there's there's very few economically sound things that cities can do to try to keep you know, their housing market going at the rate that it is. I think conversely, and, and more urgent in my mind, is that as housing prices are being artificially inflated by high levels of liquidity in a market, there's very little that cities have been able to do to respond to that. You've seen clumsy responses like rent controls and uh, you know, and and places that are trying to help people pay down their down payments and things like that, or or tax rebates for new home buyers and local markets. But these things have done very little to stall the kind of very the 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 upward ballooning, the inflation of asset prices that we see in the housing market. I feel like the interesting thing now is going to be we can look at inflation and we can see how the Fed targeted 2% and for many, many years tried to get 2%, 2%, 2% and failed. And then all of a sudden we're at 8%, you know, plus. And inflation's been described oftentimes as like ketchup in a bottle. You try to get a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, nothing comes, nothing comes, nothing comes. And then bam, the whole thing empties out onto your plate. I see an element of risk in the mortgage market in the same way because there's this feedback loop where as rates go up, supply comes off the market because people are less willing to move, less willing to uh, kind of enter into that market. That lessening supply actually increases prices uh, in ways that have this really weird feedback loop with interest rates because rising interest rate also increases. Uh, it will decrease price, but increase the amount that people will pay every month. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out because the good scenario would be prices start to come down more in line with what people can afford. We get natural rates of interest where people can actually make a decent uh, mortgage, you know, a decent home purchase with a, a fair mortgage. Um, but you could wind up in a scenario where prices continue to rise and people's capacity to get into homes continue to fall and the market stagnates even more than it is now, which would be you know, as Andrew said, 15% of our market starts to do that. The whole market starts to go bad very quickly. Well, Andrew, I, I mean, I'd like to get your thoughts on how you see this playing out or what what are the potential scenarios? Because I, I feel like there's a lot of noise <laughs> right now in the discussion around inflation and the federal policies. And, you know, it's this 
do we all have uh, 2007, 2008 vibes going on right now where, you know, this is going to stimulate a major financial crisis or is that really just noise and are things going to calm down and level out? It's, you know, I'm not asking you to predict the future necessarily, but I would like to get your perspective on how this might impact uh, the the economy in general, housing, housing supply, and the, the ability to actually uh, build new housing in cities, which is so needed right now. Two thoughts on this. One is that I think Chuck did a really good job of describing the conflicting signals in the home price market at the moment. It's not clear which way prices will go. And one reason is because of the supply part of the equation, right? So a lot of the Financing stuff kind of works on the demand side by trying to moderate that. But at the same time, we're not seeing the number of new homes being built relative to population increases. I mean, the millennials are kind of just getting into their prime home buying years. Uh, Household sizes continue to decrease. So there's some tailwinds in some extent on the demand side, but the supply hasn't been able to react in the same way. So I think about what could like local policymakers do one thing would be make it easier for that supply to come on the market, right? So how can you reduce some of the red tape out there, some of the regulations? A lot of it really well-meaning, you know, environmental type regulations, but that have been, I think, shown to overhand be bad tools in the hands of the wrong people who use it for purposes that weren't necessarily intended. And I think over time, you'll see a nice healthy increase in the supply of houses as supply chain stuff kind of works out. To help to help bring that back into balance. Now that doesn't mean you'll see a big decrease in home prices, mostly because I just don't see those supply issues working themselves out in the near future. There's still an awful lot of of nimbyism, for lack of a better word, in a lot of the areas that do want to see the natural growth of these houses. So that's the the, the challenge when sort of looking at the the home prices. When it comes to the broader market, though, one thing you need to look at is well, what else do investors have? in terms of choices, right? So one thing I think reason that residential is gonna continue to be very strong is that the office market, the retail market, the hotel market, all that is really bad news at the moment. Um, Demand has hardly come back at all for those product types. So if you're an investor and you're sitting here with a fair amount of money ready to go, where are you gonna put it? Residential seems like the best of maybe a bunch of bad options. It's the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry. Uh-huh, right. uh-huh. And- well, and I think just last week we were talking about, you know, corporate investors buying up housing and, you know, it makes a lot of sense if there's not a lot of other places to put a lot of money right now. Andrew, I, I want to ask you a question about your side of the, the, the work, because there's a, there's a sense that I have gotten traveling around the country and and talking to different people who do housing development at different scales, that a a lot of what has happened in this high liquidity market is that really good players have been, in a sense, driven out of the system. You wouldn't think that because of all the demand. I think in a normal cycle, supply and demand would say new entrants would, when there's a lot of demand, new entrants would come into the market and, and try to meet that demand. But it seems like in the housing market, that uh, two things have happened. One, you have to have a lot of capital to play in this market now. Uh, some of that is the long approval processes, but but a lot of it is the uh, the kind of uh, you know bigger projects that are being funded and and the way that the finance is kind of working its way through the system, and that shrinks the number of players a- at the table. 
The other thing is, is that some of the bad, and I'm going to say this in my way and please push back or correct this. I feel like the the appreciation that we've seen year over year in real estate, particularly in the residential sector, has bailed out a lot of really bad, not bad actors in terms of like nefarious actors, but a lot of people who, you know, like as Warren Buffett would say, when the tide goes out, you know who's swimming naked. There's a lot of people who should not be developers at this scale or have very risky, bad business models that have relied on this kind of endless appreciation to, in a sense, bail them out of bad decisions they've made. Um, if that appreciation comes to an end, it seems like there's going to be a, a reckoning of some sort in the marketplace. And, and I don't know how that works out. I don't know if I'm over-exaggerating that effect, but it seems to me like uh, th there needs to be some type of a shift in who is developing property and, and what their underlying incentives are. From your perspective, what is this? What is the development side of this look like today? Uh, where are we strong? Where are we weak? I think we continue to be weak in the infill markets, some of the tougher markets to develop in, just for some of the reasons we alluded to earlier. Um, Built-up areas have a lot more boundary issues, right? You've got tight neighbors on all sides. You've got existing infrastructure you're trying to deal with. Um, there's just a lot more headache involved in trying to take a infill property to a new use than it is to, say, a greenfield. And so much of our housing markets and housing providers were built up with that kind of greenfield mentality. Some have made the shift to be more infill type developers. Um, some do it very well. Some do it less well, as you mentioned. For, as a relatively smaller developer, it's kind of tough when, you know, you're Market is discovered and the big boys start saying, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're done out here building in the exurban areas. We want to build in the cool neighborhoods as well, uh, because they do bring sort of a, a lot of those advantages you, you mentioned to the table. I think it's just too early to say whether the tide has gone out, right? Like just hasn't gone out yet. Could it at some point? It, it has to some extent, I think, in some of those other markets I mentioned earlier, like office and retail. I mean, there's just can't be that many retail developers out there are the ones who did, you know, they're becoming apartment developers. Um, they're, they're seeing the light as well. So I do think um, there's a lot of good development talent out there. Uh, it's not always about cost of capital. That's part of it. But when I look at my performance and I say, well, what percentage of my overall costs are like the financing costs? Typically like three or 4% of a development. So changes in interest rates in some ways don't even move the needle all that much on the overall cost of a development. Hard costs are 80 plus percent, right? So it's really what is going on in the construction market? Are there builders out there? Um, so many builders are out there building endless Amazon warehouses that just even finding the labor to come and build apartments has become quite difficult. So that's a bigger driver of that. That said, where the financing I think does come into play is on that exit. Like, you know, what is the end goal of your development if you're gonna hold it or you're gonna sell it? And that's another area where, you know, we've seen rising interest rates, but we haven't necessarily seen sale prices go down in a correlated way. So um, over the long run, sure, uh, capitalization rates as the term is, should have some resemblance to interest rates, but they can definitely not over a long period of time. It seems like that result, 
which which I think financially we would call stable, <laughs> where interest rates rise but prices remain the same, seems only viable in a market where supply is remains constrained, right? And that's a a market that is increasingly unaffordable for most people. I think more and more people get priced out of that market. And so to me, it feels like if you're a Federal Reserve policymaker, if you're a local mayor, um, what is stable for financial markets seems at odds with what is stable for society at large. Is, is that a fair? Is that, is that a fair assertion? I think very much so. I, I think there's an inherent tension between housing as an investment and housing as a as a consumable good. If I had to say as a policymaker, I'd I'd want to lean in on the consumable good part, right? This is something that everybody needs. Housing should be provided for them. But if it's a really good investment, i.e., it's ever increasing in price, well, what does that mean for the actual supply of housing there? Um, it becomes really good for, let's say, uh, one generation, but then each generation following down the road is just sort of behind and behind that curve. And I think we've seen a lot of that right there. I think I'm the oldest one on this call. So uh, <laughs> I don't know how old you are, Andrew. I just turned 49 and I feel like I'm, uh, you know, as a, as a Gen Xer, I'm caught between these, the, the boomer generation, which is trying to retire off of decades of home equity that uh, they've enjoyed a, a really nice run on. And then the, uh, the millennials who would like into this party, but have kind of been kept on the sidelines of it. It feels like it's a generational tension almost. This is a podcast with many generations represented here, <laughs> each with more discontent. I'm 44, so kind of right on that same cusp. But also, I find it interesting as someone who relocated from California to Kansas City. I mean, I never even dreamed about holding a house until I was in my probably mid-30s. And then yet my wife, born and raised in Kansas City, you know, she was a homeowner by the time she was 23, in large part due to a a, a modest but real inheritance from her grandmother that was able to be a down payment on a $100,000 house. Yeah, those are the kinds of opportunities to just feel like they're so far in the rearview mirror as to be meaningless. Well, we'll leave it there on a good note. <laughs> but before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been reading, listening to, watching, anything that's been going on in our life. Uh, so Chuck, I'll, uh, I'll let you go first. So I've been asked to write an article for a, a Catholic journal, and it's put on by a society that uh, asked us to include G.K. Chesterton quotes in the piece. And I was piqued enough, my interest was piqued enough, and that the topic they asked me to discuss uh, was was interesting enough to me that I actually went and bought some G.K. Chesterton and started to read it. People have told me many years that that I remind them of Chesterton. I have to say, I've never read much Chesterton. And after reading him now, I'm not sure that that's high flattery. I, I like him. I think there's interesting points here. He does have a rather rambling writing style, which I'm rethinking now, my, some of my writing. But I've managed to pull out a couple quotes from Orthodoxy and include them in the article that I've written. And uh, hopefully when I submit it, it will still be worthy of, of publication. So um, <laughs> looking forward to I, that. I feel like Chesterton has a lot of important things to say. Um, I just wish he would say it in a hundred words instead of, you know, 3000 words. It would save everybody a lot of time. It would save a lot of time. It's, a, <laughs> it's The book is a little thicker than it needed to be. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Andrew, this is your first down zone. So uh, what have you been up to? Thanks, Abby. Well, you know, I went down to my reading chair and looked at the stack of books that's there. It's one that keeps seems to grow over time. But right now, on top of it, was uh, was Chuck's book, so Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. And, uh, you know, I think of those really great books out there that have that paradigm-shifting quality, and this is one of those. It's just, you know, you start to walk around in your neighborhood. I'm a, uh, a big fan of walking. Um, and you just look at everything a little bit different, and you start to understand, you know, why is this street look this way, and the one that's one block over look totally different? Like, what is the reason for this? And I think the book does a really great job of kind of going into that. Um, chapter eight is probably my favorite yet, and that's on transportation finance, in part because I'm more familiar with finance in a housing context, less familiar in the transportation context, and this kind of fits in some of those missing puzzle pieces. Um, but I do feel like over the last couple of years, I've just become more and more radicalized as my kids get older, as I want to kind of push them out into the neighborhood. I also want them to be safe on our streets, whether it's walking or riding. Um, and I happen to live in one of those great old uh, inner, somewhat suburban, somewhat urban neighborhoods in Kansas City that have that pre-World War II quality to them that is just so wonderful. And you just hope that people can somehow rediscover that form and bring it back. So um, that's that's the book I'm currently making my way through. Yeah. And Andrew, you're in kind of a streetcar suburb area. And I, I always get concerned that that these places over time will start to kind of become like our, our midtown where people just kind of have this commuter perspective about things. And so therefore try to retrofit things to fit the commuter model. And I, I'm hoping that Kansas City is is past that now. We, you know, we're growing up and realizing that we don't need to do that. Um, but it's always kind of a, a concern that, you know, the engineers come in and start <laughs> widening all the streets and making it super easy to go 40 miles per hour throughout every area of the city. <laughs> well, you know what it is? It's, it's one of those neighborhoods that really does need to thicken up a little bit. Like it really could stand. I've uh, had some wonderful conversations with some of my neighbors about how this neighborhood was back in the 60s and 70s when there was five, six kids in every single house. And now on my block, you know, it's lucky if you have two kids in a house and most of them have zero kids. So even though the, the number of housing units is the same, just the population that those housing units support is a fraction of what it was before. But there's these great corner lots that could become sixplexes or duplexes or you name it and start to bring back some of that just population density to get people out on the streets, get people walking around and 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 patronizing those little local strip, uh, not really strip malls, but like corner, corner commercial spaces that, uh, you know, dot all these older neighborhoods, but are, are so sadly lacking in, in newer neighborhoods. What, what neighborhood are you in, Andrew? So we're, I'm in the Brookside neighborhood, which is just south of the country yep. club plaza. I know where you're and, at then. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've, every house I've bought has been like older in age, right? My first one was like 1942, then 1938. This is 1911. So nice. Uh, I don't know what the next one will be, but I guess it'll be 1800 something. <laughs> yeah. You can buy my house. It's 1890. Are you serious? <laughs> Lots of quirks. Yeah. I, wow. uh, not too long ago, we were watching the Titanic and in our house and I, I was sitting there thinking, wow, the, this house was like 30 years old when the Titanic, you know, sank. And 
somebody probably got a newspaper and, or I don't know, maybe somebody stood in the middle of the town square and, and got up <laughs> on a box and yelled the news. I don't, I'm not sure how things worked back at, back then, but. Yeah. I think we got a newspaper. Yeah. It's weird to think the house had been standing for 30 years when the Titanic. So I have the oldest house. I have the newest house then. Cause mine's 1914. Um, wow. What a new house. Yeah. No. I'm, yeah. <laughs> Must be very, very nice. modern. This is, it's funny because I know there's people on the East Coast listening to us going, like, this is nothing. Yeah. But here in the Midwest, a 100 year old house is a really old house. I mean, I have one yes. of the oldest houses in my community. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, full time job, I guess, to take care of old houses, but you kind of feel right, like a steward. Abby, so, what's, what's your downside? Are you going to tell us about watching Obi Wan Kenobi? Because I was hoping that some, no, I, was, I was hoping I that Andrew or I was going to talk about it. So, <laughs> no, no, I'm not talking about that. I actually revisited another movie that I hadn't seen since I was a kid, Force Gump, which everybody in the world has seen. Um, and I had not watched it in many, many years. And I just thought it was really fun to revisit that. It is, of course, probably one of the best movies ever made. And I just loved kind of watching the character development. And I I love how, uh, you know, the main character, Forrest, just kind of like it doesn't spend too much time on each chapter of his life. And he just is totally driven by intuition and doesn't really make any plans or think about what he's doing, but it just works out uh, really well for him, which I just think is it's really interesting to to think about. And and I just think it's a wonderful movie, and I'm glad I revisited it. So my oldest took an AP class, AP uh, U.S. History this year, and they had their test. And so you know they're kind of just in idling the last couple of weeks of the school year, and. The class watched Forrest Gump and my daughter came home and, you know, they, they, they get like 45 minutes a day. So they watch it. You know, it's a long movie. They watch it over successive days. And she came home on the last day and said, dad, I was bawling in class and nobody, yeah. nobody else was crying at all. And I just couldn't stop crying and I'm still crying. And That's so funny. I, I was crying too. I know I she has it. this big heart and I'm like, oh, come here, kid. Like, let me give you a hug. Like I cried too. It's okay. It's a good movie. Sorry, yeah. Andrew, go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I was just kind of, you know, we, I think we need like the Generation X version of Forrest Gump at some point, you know, who can be there with a, an early Nirvana concert. Or- yeah. I was going to say, um, you know, I, I, all the different phases of life where you try to check out and then get like drug back into something you didn't want to do. <laughs> right. It'd be a very, a Gen X version would be very depressing. I feel like where Forrest Gump was, was kind of ultimately uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm sitting here thinking, what about the millennial Gen Z version of Forrest Gump? And what would that look like? It'd be a lot of screen time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Not a very exciting movie. <laughs> it would be the evolution of like the, it would go from the iPod to the uh, the iPod Nano to the iPhone, uh, you know, one or whatever. It would, that's what it, it would just be like an app. The story of Apple would be basically be like. The, uh, the millennial version of Forrest Gump. Well, that would be interesting because it could be about Forrest Gump's uh, grandchild and he invested <laughs> in Apple. So it could kind of be the, you know, how yeah. Apple made their life and then destroyed it later down the road. 
at the end when he's going through rehab for like screen addiction, he discovers in his family safe that someone had bought a hundred Apple shares in 1982 or something. And they're now, he's now a multimillionaire. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, I think we have something here. Maybe we should uh, <laughs> put together screenplay, see if anybody will buy it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's end it there. Andrew, thank you so much for joining yeah, us thank today. You, Andrew. It was really wonderful to have you. Come back anytime. See you all soon. All right. Well, thank you, Chuck. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, both. Bye. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do.